0: You're listening to the Chris Voss Show podcast. We interview the smartest people in the room. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators to fill up your brain and make you better looking. Here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, dot the com. Hey, welcome to the podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in today. Uh, We've been covering a lot of Black Lives Matter stuff. We've been having this discussion with a lot of different brilliant minds, great authors, speakers, etc., people that have these wonderful minds and and sharing the experience of what we're going through culturally in America, what uh, different things we need to improve, what things we need to change, what we need to look at internally uh, into our own selves and our own mirrors, because that's really what all of this world is, is a wilderness of mirrors Um, that's reflecting back on us, things that we need to change on the inside and so it's been great to have some of these wonderful people on today we have a guest making his second appearance. There you go. he's up for the yes and no robe, I guess in a few more appearances. Dr. Lawrence Chatters currently serves as the vice President for Student Affairs at Midland University. Dr. Chatters holds a doctorate. And a master's degree in counseling psychology from the University of Nebraska Lincoln. He's an avid reader, entrepreneur, rap artist, and international DJ. Uh, Dr. Chatters has been engaged in diversity, equity, and inclusion work for the past 14 years through a range of professional experiences, including a diversity concentration in his postdoctoral fellowship at Penn State University and his role as the Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator for the Nebraska Athletic Department. Uh, Dr. Chatters considers his most important roles, though, uh father to his two daughters and a partner to his wife of 15 years, Katie. How are you doing? Welcome to the show against Lawrence. Chris,
1: it is so awesome to be here again. And I do expect a robe at least after the fifth time, so I hope you have I it.
0: I think there's a there's a robe or there's a coffee cup or, I don't know, we we're working on it. That's awesome. <laughs> it 's a covid test it 's that 's more valuable exactly that's, right it, now that 's a what box we- of- it's a box of toilet paper with the Chris Voss show on it or something.
1: Nice. I should oh, probably give that out because it's worth giant it. cotton swabs too, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Stick them all the way up your nose and brain. But, no, it's wonderful to have you on uh, again. Uh, you know, as I mentioned before, you're welcome to come on anytime so we can discuss all sorts of different intelligent issues because that's the sort of discussions we love to have on the show. So how are you doing otherwise? Uh, how are things over there on your side of the world?
1: Well, right here in uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, um, you know we're experiencing an uptick in uh, coronavirus cases, like many people across the country are, um, and uh, you know that's challenging. I think uh, people want to try to get back to some sense of normalcy, but we're watching it very closely uh, here in Nebraska. We were able to flatten the curve and. Um, not necessarily through extremely restrictive measures, but we gave people the opportunity, the autonomy to do what they thought was best back moving in that direction, but with even less restrictions. So it's, it's interesting. You know, we kind of talked a little bit offline about the rugged individualism of the United States and the um, autonomy of our people here in this country. And I think that's really one of the challenges we're up against with uh, coronavirus, right, is that people want mm-hmm. to manage it however they see fit. They don't want to have to Listen to doctors. I mean, think about it. When you go to the doctor, they give you a recommendation. Sometimes you follow it as long as it doesn't impact your life too significantly. And I think that's what we're facing now, right, is this wide range of people's opinions and decisions to do what they think is best for them despite um, medical uh, advice. And so it's challenging, right?
0: There's been a lot of discussion we've been having with that in fact yesterday i I was bored last night I couldn't sleep, and uh I started going through my Facebook feed and I started notice like really crazy stuff, like people talking about how the testing sites are they're actually injecting you with the virus, at the testing sites oh my goodness and people doing these expert car videos, which I finally spoke out against this you know if you're if you're listening to this, look at this, I've had a professional studio for i don't know ten years. And you know it's not a professional, professional. It's in my house, to my office. I mean, at one point I had the whole kitchen turned into a studio. Um, but like, seriously, if you're listening to experts sitting in their car, especially when they're driving endangering people distracted driving, you may want to check your <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, here's your sign. Like seriously, yes. Um, you know, honestly, I mean, if you listen to someone who has a degree, like you have a degree, like you, you, you've got a. What, what is it? You've got a master's degree in counseling psychology and a doctorate. Like I'm going to listen to you. Some guy in a car who's like, I don't know, a janitor part-time or he's an Uber driver or something. And I'm not saying they're bad people, but you just might be out of your depth. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know,
1: that's, that's uh, it's an important point that you bring up that, you know, people don't really follow the sources of a lot of their information all the way back to the start of where that source is. And, It's one of the unfortunate things about the uh, rise of some of the news sources that are specifically funded by, um, you know, different interests. And when you follow the money, and I think that's where you'll always find influence, right? If you follow the money, um, you'll find that uh, some of these uh, things that are being floated around um, as far as conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. and things of that nature – may even be coming from outside of the United States and actually increasing the potential of chaos and things of that nature. And I never rule those things out um, because I understand how smart some people are and how they can sow seeds of discontent and actually force a country to implode on itself. And so, you know, that's what I see um, happening around. But uh, today, hopefully we can talk about something really positive and awesome, which is This idea, Chris, of moving from awareness to action. I've watched and listened to a lot of your podcasts and I see that, you know, you really are using your platform in a very positive way to bring on highly skilled and educated people to talk about complex issues. And I think that's awesome because, you know, other intellectuals like myself, we like to listen to that. We like to listen to people's development and how they conceptualize different complex issues in their journey. And I think I've heard that from you. I've started to hear the development of that in you. And so I'm really interested to kind of keep talking about your development today through some of the concepts that I've uh, come up with. And I want to talk to you about each one of these areas. So we'll, we'll hopefully get a chance to do that today. Let's do it. So yeah. So Chris, today I want to talk to you a little bit more about awareness to action. We have a lot of people out there that are in my opinion, in the process of learning more, they're becoming more aware of what's happening around them. They're seeking out additional information regarding institutional racism and some of the other challenges that uh, people of color face in the United States. And I've actually had a chance to talk with some of those people, some of my friends uh, from high school who just say, hey, Lawrence, you know, I want to call you and talk about white privilege. This is not a concept I ever understood or believed in. But now that I've done more research, I get it. And i Really want to talk to you about it, and I've tried to make myself available, as I'm sure many of pe- many people of color out there have made themselves available uh, to have discussions, because we know that it forwards the movement as we can, um, you know, get more people to be a part of it. But I want to talk to you a little more about your journey today, Chris. So this is, you know, it is the Chris Voss show, and today it's really going to be the Chris Voss journey because I right. hear about it. Okay, so
0: I'm scared and thrilled at the same time.
1: You should be because anytime a psychologist comes on here and gets to ask you
0: questions, oh, sh-
1: no. Oh, crap!
0: Yeah, I, I just forgot you're a psychologist. So I'm screwed now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: no, you'll be fine. Um, uh, uh, be. But the acronym that I've come up with uh, that kind of describes the journey that a lot of people are on right now is power. And when I think of power specifically, I want you to understand that I'm thinking of the superpower that most of us have as human beings to really raise our awareness and become advocates and in us realizing our power as I will spell out the um, acronym for you I think we help other people realize their power so the P of the power is privilege so the first thing we're going to talk about today Chris is tell me what are some of the privileges you feel you have in this country as you have looked at the current circumstances that we're experiencing what are some of the privileges that you've seen you have
0: Good. I thought we were going to talk about how my h- father didn't hug him as a child. Not yet. Um, no. I'm sorry, I had to throw that in there. Um, I mean, there's, there's an endless amount of white privilege that I have uh, when I get pulled over by a police officer. I know I don't have to worry about it. I have to sweat at all. I don't have to think about it. In fact, I know, especially in my older fat age, uh, when I was younger, they liked the ticket B for speeding. But I had a BMW, so that was, I was speeding. But, uh, no, I, I know that I don't have to worry about that. And I'm likely to get off. Like there's kind of a code. Um, The uh, uh, I don't have to worry about when I apply for a job or if I work with people that people are going to judge me based upon my name. I'm pretty familiar with um, I I forget the uh, different reports and studies have been done on it. But they found that people when HR people are looking at different names, they identify certain names racially. And if they have racial bias, then they. Then they, you know, they tend to go for, well, this person is not you know, that's whole racial um profile. Mm-hmm. Um God, there's like a, a probably a long list. Uh I know that uh uh I'm probably never gonna get a long jail sentence for any of the crap I've ever done. How about that? Uh when I look at um when I look at the amount of people that are in prison and the racial makeup of everyone that's in the prison, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, you see the racial bias there. I don't have to worry about getting beaten by a cop. You know, I see. you see this all the time right now in the videos of these cops. You know, you have some white guy, he pulls some crap, and the cop's like, hey, just calm down, you know, it's going to be fine. You see the white kids, like the young man who shot up the uh, church um, and killed all the the parishioners there, Uh, you know, they, they let him out in cuffs and even took him for a McDonald's burger you know, meanwhile, if you're just, uh, selling cigarettes on the side of the road, or, um, you, you might've passed a bill that's bad, a counterfeit bill, um, you know, then we got to beat you over the head. Um, and, um, God, what else, what else do I have white privilege? Well,
1: no, I, I think that's, that's a great place to start. And you are certainly aware of those privileges. Um, and, All of the things that you're saying are things that are real. There's uh, statistics to back these things up. There's real life experiences to back those things up. There's um, real life experiences that uh, people of color have where they've uh, suffered through the opposite end of those privileges, not necessarily being extended that privilege. I think that's honestly one of the first things that people have to understand, Chris, when they're going about this uh, from awareness to action is they need to understand what their privileges are. Um, likely you understand your privilege as a male as well, right, here in the United States. That's an important thing to recognize. Um, and so then as you start to layer those things on top of each other, uh, white, male, um, you know, likely have some socioeconomic status, uh, some opportunities, a platform, all of these things, their privileges. And so in that, those privileges, I think as other people start to think about the beginning of this journey from awareness to action, they need to think about what their privileges are. I also think of my privileges. You know, I think of the fact that I have an education, right? I have a few degrees. I have um, access in some specific areas. I have the ability to intellectually um, articulate myself. So if I need to make a point, I can do that. Um, I can I can be in certain spaces that other people may not have the opportunity to be in. I'm, I'm good at writing. And so from a, a, from that perspective, I can express myself as well. If I need to, if I need to send a letter to somewhere to get something, I can do that. Um, I have privilege of being able to walk. Some people don't have that privilege. (laughs) I have the ability to hear. I have the ability to see now I'm stepping into some other privileges, Chris, that people don't usually think about. Right. So That's the first step. And I think you have done a great job of being able to articulate and understand those privileges. So that's one of the things I want to encourage people to do is do that self-reflection. You had an individual on your show the other day talking about the James Baldwin book. And one of the things he said that was very enlightening to me that I've always felt is that the challenging part about going about this journey of understanding institutional racism in the United States is that it first takes an internal journey before you can understand the external. If you don't go on that introspective journey, it's difficult to understand how you and other people fit into this mix of things. And so I want to know from you at this point, what kind of internal journey did you go on to understand all of those privileges? How did you go about that process internally?
0: Um, oh, one, one thing I thought of while you were talking, cause you made the point actually uh, I was I was given a pretty good school that was well funded and I had a good education for the most part, even though I failed at most of it, but that's me. Um, But I had a good education and a lot of people uh, in poor communities or like Harlem or different things have, have schools that aren't funded well, probably from racial systematic racism. Um, And so they don't have the same opportunities, especially when it comes to getting a job. Um, Where did my journey begin um, with race Um, you know, my, my, my introspection has been kind of weird. I grew up in a Mormon cult. Um, and, uh, there, there are two religions that I refer to as a cult, Scientology and Mormonism. They're both space cults. Um, and, uh, from three years old I knew it was kind of, there stuff wasn't logically working for me. Uh, I couldn't put, you know, two and two together. And so, Ever since then, I always questioned things like what I was told and stuff. And so I always had the seeking mind Um, that was, you know, people tell me things and I try and put stuff together. Fortunately, I was raised in California and uh, uh, it was a melting pot of everyone. I was a kid, whatever. And uh, I think when I first became really strongly aware of race was when I moved to Utah, which is 90% white. And one of my best friends, was African-American. I hadn't noticed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and which you think I would in 90% white Utah, but I just didn't notice it. And when I was in, it was in like 10th grade, we were in history class and he was the only African-American in the room. And the teacher said, uh, well, you know, we were talking about slavery and history and stuff. And he said, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? What's your opinion? And that was like the first time I looked at him and went, Oh, I have a black friend. Um, and, for there, you know, I went through most of the journey of life. I, I tried to always, I was never religious, I'm atheist, but I always tried to hold to some principles, uh, John Lennon's Imagine, uh, you know, do good to others, you know, the basic principles of morality that anyone should really espouse esp- uh, to. Um, but I'm not sure, you know, I really understood white privilege and race and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um Early on, uh, about 30 years ago, I met Dr. France Davis at his church, and I was there selling some stuff that was like religious materials and stuff that uh, the company I was working for was selling. And it was the first time that I felt, when I first met him, he was very suspicious of me. I've been trying to get him on the show, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very suspicious of me. Uh, and I could feel, I could feel that, he, that I was white and he was black. And the way, you know, he, he walked with, he walked with Martin Luther King uh, and Selma and Birmingham bridge. And he's a great civil rights guy here in Utah. Um, and I could feel that there was this difference based upon us. And I, I knew what he was, you know, I mean, here I was this stupid, you know, white kid showing up in his thing. And he was like, you know, what is, what does this guy want? Right. And over time, over, over that hour or two that I spent with him, I got to know him, warm up to him. You know, he, he finally went, okay, this is another one of those dudes who's just trying to figure out how to use me. Um, and I guess he decided I was a nice enough guy. He gave me a tour of the church, uh, and it left an impression on me too. At the time I just kind of, I, I saw the band thing mm-hmm. and, uh, the, the, the band, uh, set up the drums and everything. And I was like, I was like black people have really cool churches, man. I don't want to come to this thing right in the Mormon church, like Mormon church, is like a funeral. Um, and so, uh, and so that had an impression on me 30 years later. In fact, we're just trying to get him on the show. Um, he's retired, so I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get him on. Um, and it's I don't I don't know if he's good at Zoom, so there's that. But uh, he left an impression on me for 30 years. And in Black Lives Matter, in Obama, I voted for Obama, and I voted for Obama not because he was black. I voted, and I it was probably one of the principles, but I really bought that he was a great leader. He was a great speaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a great motivator. I bought I bought the change, man. You know, everything was about change with Obama, um, and I, I bought it. And I, I said to myself, I'm going to give you a shot at the vote because this is the last time I vote for a politician because, you know, I just felt like they were all garbage before. And I said, I'm voting because I believe in change, man. But if you don't change, <laughs> I'm never voting for anybody ever again. Um, and um, But we saw the rise of Black Lives Matter. And uh, a lot of my friends were having issues with it, and we started having discussions of, of uh uh, white privilege and why this is important. And, you know, even back then, what was this? 2015, 2000, yeah. mm-hmm. 2015. Um, and then, you know, then the discussions came about black lives matter, all lives matter. What does it mean? Everything else. And I think that's when I kind of started seriously going down the journey, but a lot of those early things had an impression on me. Um And uh, you know a lot of my friends we we're you know we do what we do in our social sphere uh we argue about different points and kind of learn from those and mm-hmm. and uh it it made me start to realize that you know there are people that are disadvantaged that that uh you know one of the things I woke up to was someone said something uh you know uh, we just barely gave civil rights to african American people in the six sixty five and so we 're like really like what 50 60 70 years out of that we're just barely a generation out of that or two um there hasn't been a lot enough significant you know time that's changed or things that we've really changed because we we kind of didn't really do much after that um and so that was kind of my journey And this this uh and then of course um it got deeper when donald trump got was was running for election because I could see the racism coming out. I could see it from my friends coming out that were closet racists who'd been singing, Kumbaya, Obama's president. And then all of a sudden you started seeing the creep from come out from uh, the closet racists with the, oh, uh, Trump says we don't have to be PC so we can say the N-word and whatever we want now. And you're just like, wait, I thought you were like uh, all like, let's all be one. And they're like, no, no, we're going to call out. Uh, you know, racist or be racist and do what we want because Trump says okay. And so I I kind of started going on this journey of looking at racism, looking at my contribution to things because that's what I usually do is I go, you know, what am I contributing to this? Um, I did, I actually did something that was kind of uh, interesting. i never heard a lot of people doing, but I started doing a thing after Trump became president. And I learned all the white nationalist codes, mm-hmm. you know, words like culture, you know, and when he says "our," like our culture, he doesn't mean like all Americans. He means like white people, especially white nationalist people. Um, and so I started learning the code words and I started reading and learning about white nationalism. And I'm like, holy, there's like a whole thing with this thing. You know, I, I thought, I thought we buried these people in 1950 or something, but we didn't. And so one of the things I started doing was I started walking around and looking at faces. And I learned that I, you know, there's this thing that we do with faces. And it goes back to our caveman days where we look at someone's face and we make, judgments and decisions about them. And a lot of times they're very inaccurate, right? So I started doing that and I started kind of looking at my own prejudices and my unconscious bias. I'm like, so what what did I just judge about that person? Do you know what? Mm -hmm. Did I fear them because of maybe they looked a little subversive and why did they look subversive to me? You know. And, and I'm talking to everybody. I just started looking at everybody's faces and started kind of listening to what my unconscious bias is. And I probably still have them. I don't know if I'm perfect on it, but this is part of the journey. And I started talking about it. So sorry for going long on
1: that. No. So what you've described, <laughs> what you've described, Chris, um, in your own personal journey is that it's taken you a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of exposure, and a lot of deep thinking to recognize um, what your privileges are and where you currently stand. And I think that's so important because people in this moment who haven't done that long-term introspection, they feel as though they're supposed to come to an understanding right now about what's happening, but it's not something that happens so quickly. It actually takes time and it takes energy and it takes pain to be honest with you. Right? So I think you've described that you've described likely some of the pain that you felt when you couldn't change some of those beliefs and perspectives that you had of other people and you're like gosh that that hurts like why would I think that of somebody just because they look a certain way and I need to change that I need to actively be aware that this is what I'm attributing to that person because maybe that's what my experience was in the past with people that look like that or maybe I had a bad experience with someone that looked like that so my brain is telling me don't interact with someone like that again because it might lead to another bad experience that could be anyone across the board you know not specifically talking about anything from a cultural perspective but our brains do that for us automatically by the way they say Mm -hmm. yes and no that's what our brain does for us in an instant it's a split second decision it's a millisecond actually that is brought on by, like you said, our evolutionary amygdala, our animal brain tells us we should either fight or we should take off, right? Yeah. And so if you think about the United States and you think about the history of uh, certain peoples in America, there had been a concerted effort to create a difference, a shift, a change between people's thinking about certain types of people. So it automatically led to looking at something and making an attribution. And so, and what I can honestly say is that, when has that been positive for people of color in the United States? When have we ever as a country taken a concerted effort to say, when you see people of color, think positively, right? The news doesn't do that. Our criminal justice system doesn't do that. There are no major institutions that attribute the positives to people of color at this point. It's the opposite. So that's the same world that we all grow up in, all of us. As a matter of fact, uh, me personally and my own personal cultural identity journey, there was certainly a, a, a time frame of potential self-hatred and just not necessarily being proud of being who I am, African-American, right? So this is a part of that journey. It's that introspection. And I, I appreciate you being vulnerable enough to talk about when it started for you, which wasn't necessarily super young with the cultural understanding, but it was kind of at a little bit older of an age when you had that experience with that classmate of yours and it raised your awareness, right? But then later in the process, you really started to feel comfortable enough, I think, in your own personal journey and correct me if I'm wrong, but to do the next thing in the POWER acronym, which is to actually reach out to people of different cultures and start talking to them about your personal journey. And not only other people, Of other cultures but people within your own culture and you started having these discussions which i think is an important point to make is that as people of color we have these discussions all throughout growing up it's something we do in our household it's something we do with our families it's something we do with our friends it's a constant narrative but for a lot of white people in the united states having cultural discussions is not a constant narrative it's actually something that they sometimes shy away from because they don't feel perhaps that they can, you know, speak eloquently about culture, even though they do have cultures that they grow up in, they have certain traditions that they have in their families and and things of that nature. But the next point I want to ask you is, when did you start to feel comfortable with this outreach piece of talking to other white people about, you know, maybe we do need to observe and understand our implicit bias? Maybe we do need to figure out this out. And then when did you feel comfortable enough to step from that journey into talking to people of color about their experience and even learning more? Cause that's that next step.
0: Um, I've always been a big mouth in social media. I've always been a big mouth, like all my life, you know, in my companies, I used to do the, all the newsletters and I've always just been a big mouth. Uh, you know, when you own companies, I was CEO since I was 18, you you know, talk to everybody. Um, you're always selling. Uh, and so when social media came along, it was very natural for me cause you know, I had a big mouth. So, you know, we've always talked about a lot of different things. I don't, I, am not sure when it exactly started about race. I mean, certainly, uh, over time, um, you know, there's, I, I think it, I really became conscious of it, uh, probably during the Obama years because, you know that narrative started coming out of uh, out of Fox, and you would see my friends pick it up. You know, well, well, you know, he's got the tan suit, and you're like, seriously? Like, and then you would start to see there was a there's an old post I have. You can find it somewhere in 2014 or 15, um, where I'd really just gotten sick of the narrative from my friends. Some of my friends. Um, it sounds like I have all racist friends. Some of my friends that aren't friends with me anymore. Uh, and, and, and I'm like, you know what? I've seen so many posts about how you hate Obama for this and how you hate Obama for that and how you hate Obama for this. And you know, what? it's clear that you just don't like having a black president. You don't like having number one, someone who's over you, who's black and number two, someone who's probably more successful than you. And, uh, that's something I've been thinking about a lot, a lot lately too with Obama. Um, people, you know, a lot of people voted for Trump because they didn't feel like their lives were being successful and they hated looking at, you know, uh, an African American gentleman who was more successful than them, you know, aspired to be the president and here they're living in, I don't know, some backwoods, whatever, but I I'm mean to my white people that way, um, but uh and but there was a lot of that blowback and resentment for that, and that's really what Trump is is that crawling out of that guttural closet of racism um so it was probably about two thousand and fifteen. I actually called some people out lost like a whole mess of friends one day because <laughs> I'm like, you know what, I've seen so much anti Obama crap of so much stupid stuff from your Fox News narrative that clearly you have a deeper issue that isn't about the tan suit, you know, yeah, it's not about, you know, he put his feet on the desk, like whatever, dude. Um, like <laughs> he put his feet on the resolute desk and that was like a big crisis. We got a guy selling Goya freaking beans off the, <laughs> the resolute desk right now. I mean, if that isn't a crisis, uh, so anyway, um and so I've always been that big mouth and I've always gotten into it. And it's, it's been one of the ways that I flush out ideas too, that yeah. I test my ideas and I go, Here, am I crazy or am I not? And sometimes I'm I'm right, or sometimes a lot of people call me out and go, Chris, you're being really stupid right now. Um which they probably should do more if I'm surprised they don't. Um and so I started talking about but during Black Lives Matter, the resurgent, I mean Ferguson was just pff, Jesus. I mean, seeing the riot uh, gear, the army militarizes, F- Ferguson riots, yes. um, the abusive protesters, you know, it, just the whole militarization of it. They even had, you know, I, I remember calling out early on the uh, that rule that I think was the Bush era rule where they, you know, gave all the militarization stuff to the police. I'm like, this isn't good. This is going to become all soldiers of war. Um and so that's when the discussion really began because a lot of people started talking about it back then. Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, it was just... And I think shortly after that, there was other people gunned down. They are African-American. And so uh, the Obama administration was doing the thing through, I believe, Eric Holder, where they were doing those uh, contracts with the police departments
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, to try and get them to weed out racism. Um, and so that's when... That's when, um, I got comfortable. And I, I've, unfortunately, I don't know why I don't have many black friends. I don't know why I game with a lot of black people. Um, I don't know why I don't know. Maybe it's, I don't know why. So hi folks. I want to insert a editorial comment and correction here if I might, but I'm going to leave my original statement up because I think a lot of white people, uh, have the same issues. Um, but uh my, my statement that I don't have a lot of African-American friends is not true. Uh, I have worked at home since 2004. I don't have a wife and kids. So most of my social life is social media. Being a social media rock star, um, all of my friends are online. So if you go to my Facebook, if you go to my Twitter, I have lots of African-American friends. And I think I kind of slided them with a comment here that I when I said uh, that I don't have any African-American friends. And I'll explain why. Um, a lot of them are uh, active in my discussions, either privately. I've sussed out these ideas on how to talk better, and what's right, what's wrong, what should be done, uh, what's going on in our in our society, et cetera, et cetera. And many of them have 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 done wonderful contributions to what I've tried to do in the discussions that I've tried to have, and and trying to make the world a better place. And um, I think the problem in my mind is I don't make that distinction. You know, you saw Trump make that statement. Well, there's my African American friend over there. I don't. Really make that distinction uh, with them in my friends group. Like I, I just don't even think about it. There's all my friends, and so uh, I wanted to make that correction because they're listening. They're like, "Chris, you do actually have American, African American friends, you idiot." And uh, yeah, I'm not the most brilliant guy in my old age. There you go. So I just want to make that clarification because it was unfair to them. Uh, when Black Lives Matter came about again, I started inviting people on the show, and I really didn't start. I really didn't go out and say I want to invite black people on the show. Mm-hmm. I just realized that uh, we need more exposure, and we reached out to a lot of authors, and mm-hmm. so we started having more authors on. I think I brought you on because you were an author mm-hmm. of a book, and I was just looking for really good guests. So I, went, I didn't really set out with the mindset of like – um Let's bring more black people on the show to talk to them. Um, one of my good friends, uh, Donnie McDonald, should be on tomorrow. She's been on before. She's running for politics here in Utah. So the main reason I had her on the show was just because I want Utah to turn blue. <laughs> <laughs> and so I brought you on as an author and I knew you had a great degree and stuff. So I really didn't bring you on to talk about African-American stuff. Um, I was just looking to fill out the show since in the last few weeks, we've done a huge deals with book publishers to, to bring more people to the show. And there was kind of a, you could call it more serendipity than agenda, if you will. Okay. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. And you know what, Chris, even if it's you good do,
0: serendipity, I've been it is that.
1: absolutely. Even if you specifically do reach out um, to hear people's perspectives, because they are from a specific cultural background, it's okay. It's being intentional about your journey and also giving uh, those individuals an opportunity to have a platform with uh, an audience that may not necessarily hear that perspective. Because like you, There are quite a few uh, people across our country that do not have a significant amount of friends of different cultures, and that happens uh, for a reason, right? It kind of depends on where you live. Sometimes it depends on where you worship. Sometimes it depends on where you work. All of those places, unfortunately, are not very diverse in a lot of areas across our country. So where do you find those friends? Where do you find someone who you can be comfortable enough talking to about some of your um, most intimate thoughts about you know, what your own personal development is from a cultural perspective. Right. So I think that you, you bring up a great point in that you did start to feel more comfortable when you had space, but it's still a journey that you're on. Right. So in this process of outreach, I think that's what folks need to be thinking about. They need to say, who do I know that I could potentially reach out to my own personal friends that might be the same culture as me or people of other cultures who I can have these discussions with? Because I believe that, uh, you know, uh, steel sharpens steel. So the more we can have difficult conversations and I can run ideas by you about my thoughts about certain concepts, that's how we start to really learn more, not only about ourselves, but other people's perspectives. So that's the outreach. The next Uh, point of this acronym is the W and that is work and I want to commend you um, with some of the work that you've been doing and putting in the time and the effort and the reading and the research all of that is work that is so incredibly important in moving from awareness to action and It's something that, honestly, a lot of folks out there don't have the time to do. They don't have the time to sit down and read an entire book about white fragility or privilege or read the 13th, (laughs) right? I mean, they have lives. They have things that they're doing um, that, unfortunately, make it complicated. But I want to ask you, where do you find the time and the energy to do this extra work to (laughs) – create more um, awareness for yourself and how do you, wh- where do you find those sources and how do you get all that information, help people that listen to your show, understand what that journey is like for you?
0: Well, the answer is pretty simple. I don't have a wife and kids. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. All right. That's all an right. old
0: long joke for my, yeah. from my Facebook friends. Um, it, it, but you know, I, honestly I search it out. So I, I listen um, you know at Black Lives matter in two thousand fourteen fifteen i I was listening, and so I was watching um, and it comes from an analogy that you know I believe rising tide lifts all boats that 's one of my my uh, pillars i suppose um, and uh and and I was like th- there 's people that are calling out for help like if you if you called me out uh the analogy I recently came up with if you if you were drowning and or vice versa. Uh, If one of us was drowning and the other one called out to the shore and said, hey, can you save me? I need help right now. I really need some help. And you're like, hey, man, you're, you know, it's not drowning. Lives matter. It's all lives matter, man. And I I can't get wet right now. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's kind of the I don't know if that's a good analogy. That's the first time I've ever expressed that. But it's kind of that way. I mean, there, there are people that are calling out saying, hey, man, we're really hurting right now. It's not working out, and you guys are part of the problem, and we'd really like some help from your end. Can you listen and learn, and can we work together, and can we all, all you know, hold hands and, and uh, make America better? Um, and so to me, that's what the, this this whole thing really is about. When you look at the percentage of the population, the people in the room are largely white, uh, we certainly have 400 years of very ugly, nasty history, very violent, mean, we're not, we're not the greatest people. Let's put it that way. Um, and, uh, so uh, some of it does have not having a wife and kids. It would be very hard for me to do a lot of what I do without, uh, with having those challenges. So I, I feel for people that have families cause it's hard chasing those kids. <laughs>
1: challenges. <up>. That's funny. <laughs> it, it's a challenge, you know?
0: Um, but I listen and learn a lot, too. Like, one of the things I do is I do a lot of audible books while I'm working. Yeah, there's so there's, you know, stuff playing in the in the background and everything else. Um, I watch a lot of videos, but I listen and learn, I, or I try to as much as I can. I'm, I'm always working on being a better listener. Uh, and so I ju- you just have to apply to yourself. And some of it's not material that's um, – I think the biggest challenge, and you'll probably validate this for me, but the biggest challenge is it's, it's not the – It's it's not stuff that makes you feel good, you know? Like, we like stuff that makes you feel good, like, I don't know, Marvel TV or whatever. You know, dealing with the shame and the pain and the realization that maybe America's not great, maybe this whole fabric that we built, the 400 years of kind of manifest destiny, and this whole America's the greatest, you know? Mm-hmm. um you know a long time ago i i studied i don't know 10 years seven years or something every time someone says america's great i was given that was that newsroom or whatever uh bit that what's his face does on the tv where he goes what are we great in like people believe in angels and people who imprison or people in, or a country that prisons the most people in the world like what are we great at we suck in education we suck at everything else um and um uh, and I mean, if you look at the numbers, we're failing on so many different levels, especially compared to other countries. We have this, we have this attitude that we just think we're great.
1: Well, Chris, w- one of the things I want to, I do want to validate is that this is very difficult work and I think it doesn't make people feel good to, to go on this journey and find a better understanding of yourself through this process, to reach out to other people and hear their pain, um, to experience your own pain as a result of this process, and then all of the challenges that people find with finding time to do this, uh, it's very difficult. And you're not going to walk away feeling good ever, really, when you're doing some of this work. And I think that um, that's one of the challenges that uh, people who are allies and advocates face is that anytime you want to disconnect from that negative journey, you can. You can just step back and say, you know what, I'm just going to be who I am. Like, I, I, I'm, I've done enough work. I'm okay where I am, and I don't need to make any more progress. I'm fine. i I'm good. That's what a lot of people have done prematurely, in my opinion, in a lot of these discussions, is they have thought that they've learned enough, they think that they understand enough to articulate what they see and what they believe and everything else, but they haven't done a deep enough dive or journey into the research. And so you know, from writing a dissertation and understanding how deep down the rabbit hole, you have to go with some concepts and understand those things and bring them together. That's honestly just the beginning. And that's where a lot of people stop. They see things, they hear things, they read things, and then they never really discuss them. Getting a degree is very difficult uh, because you have to see all the pieces, how they fit together. And then you have to be able to understand and even even get to a point where you can teach these things at some point. Um, so It is a difficult journey. And one of the other points that you made that I really wanted to emphasize here is that one of the biggest challenges of the Black Lives Matter movement is those very three words agitate some people in our country. Okay? So Black Lives Matter. People are thinking automatically in our country, but what about everybody else? That is what automatically comes to so many people's minds when they hear Black Lives Matter. And in a country where from the very beginning of the inception of this country, they have, there has been a concerted effort to dehumanize people of color in many ways, devalue them, take away their accomplishments, co-opt the things that they've come up with. It is such a, it's contradictory to put those people first, right? So it agitates some people when they hear Black Lives Matter. They automatically say, no, all lives matter. How could Black Lives Matter any more than anyone else? Because they've learned all their life that that is not the case. So, and I've seen that and I've heard that and people won't necessarily say it out loud, but that is the genius of the black lives matter movement is that if you are to say black lives matter, honestly, you're not necessarily saying that black lives matter any more than anyone else. What you're saying is that black lives have not mattered for such a long time in our country. It's high time that they do matter. And it, it isn't something that just recently happened. It didn't start with George Floyd. It didn't start with Trayvon Martin. It didn't start with Rodney King. It didn't start with Medgar Evers. It started long before that. People have been trying to struggle for equality since the time that they were, you know, against their will brought to this country, forced to work for no money. Um, their families were torn apart. Their culture was taken away. It was torn away from them. All of these negative things that are part of the fabric of our country those are the things that, when you say Black Lives Matter, all of a sudden people just start feeling really uncomfortable. And so I appreciate uh, the fact that you can you can articulate that, and you can understand that the 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 essential opposite of that is this patriotism that some people really throw in your face sometimes. Like, don't you love this country? Do you understand what this country has given you and all the people that live here? Right? I mean, I, I think that. I mean, I I absolutely love this country. Don't get me wrong. I do. I love America. I love the United States. I actually love the foundation that this country was built on to an extent, because in the foundation of this country, there are the bones of millions of people that build the foundation of this country. And in the process of this manifest destiny that we talk about, many, many people have died over the years. And so where the weaponization of patriotism comes in my mind is this idea that if you're waving the flag and you've never really had to fight for your own personal rights, I'm sorry, you don't truly understand what America is about, right? You don't understand that this experiment that continues to develop and will continue to change over many years because we're not done with this experiment. We're in the, we're we're still in the process of finding some balance of equality for people in our country And many years after it was founded, by the way, like you said, we're babies, right? As far as some of the other countries and their establishment across the world and greater civilizations and everything else, which by the way, American history doesn't just start with America. It goes far back beyond that. So again, that is a perfect example of people doing some of the work, but not the deeper introspection and journey of understanding how all of these different pieces of the puzzle fit together, you know? And so- I'm happy that you're willing to talk about having extra time because you don't have a partner and kids and, you know, doing all of this extra work on the side. But again, you make a great point, which is that a lot of people don't have the time, the energy or the desire to do that extra work. And I want to convince them to go on that journey. I want to convince them to do some of the extra work, but it's, it's, it's hard to do. So it is,
0: you know, but it's also a choice too. um, aside from my jokes, um, you know, I could watch the Kardashians, or I can watch—I don't know—some of their mind-numbing crap on Netflix. Yes. Um But I, that's what I choose to do. I mean, to me, it just—I don't know—I have this weird thing where I want to make the world better, and I'm stupid. To me, that's my contribution because I didn't have children. So instead of making some children better to put out in the world, or worse, <laughs> if I had children, uh, the—you uh, know—my my the world is kind of my like my contribution my children so to me that's i don't know i'm weird
1: i love that that's that's a that's a great that's a great uh way to think about that i've never really thought about that you know that your contribution is just you know really increasing your knowledge increasing your awareness and then turning that into action and it kind of leads to the next thing that we're going to talk about chris um how have you become empathic to the struggles of other people Tell me about your personal journey and what has allowed you, has given you access to this idea that you can say, you know what, I feel for you. Like you said, if you see people drowning, what has encouraged you, what has compelled you to reach out to try to save them through the process of understanding how you saved yourself?
0: I'm not sure why I'm built the way that I'm built. Um, but it seems to work for me, so it's, it's going pretty good. I'm not on cops or in prison, um, although I probably should be. I seem like that white trash guy who always gets picked up at the trailer house. Um, but uh, I probably look like him too. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I've always been empathetic. I don't know why. Uh, I've always uh, sometimes tried to save people in a crazy sense um, or, or help people or reach out. Um it it might come from uh, it might come from a bully experience I had as a kid where uh I was being bullied at school and uh this this kid and his little friends were having, you know, they're just ruining everybody's day, taking my lunch money. And I think my mom or my dad said, you know, he should just pop him in the face. And and he tor- they tortured me just for the longest time. They used to follow me home and torture me on the way home. Um, and one day I snapped, and this is like, I think it was eight. I was in fourth grade, whatever age that is. And I snapped one day. I just freaking hit that point that people hit. And I laid into him, uh, and I bloodied him. I put him on the floor and I, I just lost it, like completely lost it. And he never bullied me ever again. And my father, uh, I really don't want to get into too much of this, but my father wasn't the nicest person in the world. He was Mm -hmm. a bit of a, he liked using his belt a little too much, Mm -hmm. but he taught me a lesson by antithesis that I took from my father. It was one of those lessons that I learned that be nice to the nice people and be viciously mean to the mean people. And the reason you be viciously mean to the mean people is because they're the people who prey on the nice people. They're the people who come down the beach and kick everyone's sandcastle over but be nice to the nice people because if you reach that point in your mentality where you're mean to everyone because someone was mean to you, that's not right. What you have to focus on is who the problem are, the mean people. So I've always been one of those people that I'll be on the beach with everyone else really nicely and the mean person comes down and kicks everyone's things and when he comes to kick mine, I'll rip his arms off and his legs off and teach him a lesson and I'll be like, don't be mean to the mean people. I just did this, that to someone legally recently. I use legal methods. So, um, at least now I do, but, uh, for some reason coming out of that experience with my father and making that rule in life, Mm -hmm. um, I have a thing about bullies. I don't like bullies. Mm -hmm. I have a real problem with it. So anyway, I, I think that just made me more empathetic. Um, I know that Early on, I used to get these history cards, and I forget what they're called. And I need to look them up. But I would get—we were cards about history, and a lot of them were about um, the race experience in the '60s. Mm-hmm. And so I saw the uh, young girls, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember her names, their names, um, the, but they were led into the colleges there, in, I think it was Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember seeing the um, the. Uh, uh, where they were finally allowed to let to school, and they had the military there. And then there was the governor of Birmingham, I think it was George Wallace, mm-hmm. or governor of, uh, of Alabama, Alabama yeah. George Wallace. And I would look at these pictures, and, you know, I had to work back, and then was this, you know, this was 40 years ago, so there was just the medium of pictures, I didn't have videos. And I would look at the pictures, and I'd study them, because there was just, like, nothing else to do. And so you'd look at the pictures, and you look at the hate, and you look at the innocence, and you'd see these people that were angry and the anger in their eyes, and the viciousness of them. Um, and you're just like, well, that little girl just wants to go to school. Like, I don't understand what, what the hell these people's problem is. And, and you would just, you would, you'd study these things. And like one of the photos that had a really big impact on me was Martin Luther King standing on his front lawn next to his two year old son. And there's a burnt cross there. And, I remember just looking at that for, I've walked, I've looked at it a million times just thinking, what is that experience like? Like, what does that have to explain to your son? Like why people burn across what that fear is. Um, You know, a lot of my friends uh, that are of different races have had to have the conversation. I mean, every time one of these killings happens by the police, they go, we had to have a discussion again with our kids about what, how to deal with police and, and you're just like, my God, the discussion. I don't know what made me more empathetic as a person, um, uh, but but somehow I just really about what other people, what other people, um, what other people are are feeling. Maybe because I don't know, I just put myself in their thing. But whatever my problem is in life, that <laughs> sometimes I wish I wasn't more empathetic. But I don't know, I I wouldn't be. Chris, a you better you person. Ready?
1: you know I, i've i 've actually i've 've heard you talk about that experience before um when you were interviewing the uh the guy that wrote the uh book on um uh, baldwin and you know that really moved me because I think that 's the space where some people can actually move into that empathy is through understanding the interaction between a parent and a child um and something else you described as far as your experience with bullying um and you talked about this this uh, juxtaposition of love and innocence and hate, right? So this idea that people want an experience, they want to move towards something because perhaps it's a love of education or a love of something. And there's a hatred in in between them and that thing, right? Um, And when you're thinking about bullying, you're thinking about the innocence of being young and wanting to just, Belong and be a part of something special as a young person, and there's a person that's between you and that experience who, for whatever reason, just takes advantage of you. You know, um, and what you're really describing, Chris, is you're you're describing the relationship. I believe that a lot of people of color have with the United States of America. We want to have a chance to get an education. We want to have access to spaces and live places. We want to take our kids to places and they have a great time and enjoy themselves. But there is a hatred that is woven into our country based on the historical context of what we've experienced as a people that stands in the way of that. And I truly do believe that it is through the understanding of this childlike curiosity of what would it be like to live in someone else's space or experience what someone else experiences? That is where that empathy can be found. And I think that's where you found that empathy. And I appreciate you being vulnerable enough to talk about not only that journey, but also your father and how he, he really told you, uh, in my opinion, something that's extremely important in life. That is in order to keep people from taking advantage of you, sometimes you have to appear to be bigger than you are. You have to be mean, you have to be nasty, right? Like, there's this thought process, I think, that 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 exists in that, that a lot of people, including myself, who were bullied over the years, recognize that the bullies don't mess with the people who they don't necessarily think they can take advantage of. And this, therein lies why, um, and, and this will take a bit of a, a, a digression, but therein lies kind of this genesis of the black male in hip-hop music, right? It is this tough guy, this bigger over, you know, hyper-masculine individual who you better not mess with, right? Where do you think that caricature came from? It came from all of the pain and the hurt and the struggle that men of color in this country were dealing with over the years. And it is one of the things that I connected with from a young age, hip-hop music in general, that lifted me out of my own feelings of inadequacy. Because I could look at a a hip-hop artist like a Nas or a Jay-Z or a Run DMC, Public Enemy, and I could say, those are black men who are powerful. They know what they want in this life. They sing about it. They rap about it. They talk about all of the inequities that are in the system, but we can beat it. That's where a lot of people of color find that step up out of their personal inadequacies is through hearing the stories of other people. and so. I apologize for that digression, but I thought it was a...
0: Pretty- no, I actually learned something new right there.
1: Yeah, so simply, simply put, uh, what I have to tell you is that your journey toward empathy, it speaks volumes. And I want to share that with other folks that are listening to this podcast, that find empathy where you can but do an introspection and think of what it was like for you when you didn't have the opportunity to do something or you were kept from going somewhere because of some particular reason. And in that empathy, perhaps you will find a bridge to better understand the experience of people who are marginalized in this country.
0: Yeah. You, you, you just taught me something right there about rap music and understanding the thing behind it. Um, you know, one thing I had a problem with and a lot of people had a problem with was uh, why can't, why can't we use the N-word and you can? And fortunately, one of my favorite comedians, Bill Maher, went through an issue where he used the N-word inappropriately. Okay. And Ice Cube came on to a show and did this beautiful bit on why we're not allowed to use it and you guys are. Um, and he, he explained it just so concisely, so perfectly. And I went, oh, ah, oh, moment. Okay, there it is. Now I understand. That makes complete sense. And, and, you know, it made me understand that's what the beauty of these conversations are, is that we need to have more of these conversations. They're uncomfortable. Um, you know, facing the, you know, one of the problems I keep having is I keep watching more and more videos, especially in my research in James Baldwin and, and the era. Uh, I was watching the videos again with uh, who we'll probably talk about later in the show, John Lewis, um, the, the beating, the violence, the anger. Uh, you see it, you know, you mentioned Manifest Destiny earlier where we went back to uh, the Indians and, you know, this 400 years, just this ugly violence of the, of, of white people. Um So you taught me something new there. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, it's been all about listening and journey. You know, one of the problems I, one of the reasons I don't have more African-American friends is I really don't like rap Mm. and it's not that I'm racist. (laughs) I just grew up in old school rock and roll. I'm a Metallica fan and I don't like, it's not racist. I don't like Christian music. I don't like gospel music. I don't like country music, which is racist as hell. Um, and I just don't like rap. I just don't get it musically. I get, I get the beat thing and I, I just, it's just not my cup of tea. I just don't get it. Um, and so a lot of my gaming friends that I have that are African American stuff, you know, once they start playing the rap, you know, I, I go, man, I gotta go. I I can't, it's like playing country music for me. (laughs) It's it's just the way it is. But now I understand why that's empowering to you folks. And, um, and why that matters and why the you you what you've opened up to me uh, in my mind uh is is why the the hustle or the or the one of the things I I haven't liked about rap is the is the is that that chest pounding or that uh the, the kind of the hustle what's the word it's bravado
1: that's what it is the
0: bravado of it and it's not that there's a racial element to it it's just that i'm a i'm like a really succinct guy when it comes to who i am and being real and and i don't know maybe that's the reason i'm depressed all the time is because i'm too real um but uh and I, you know, I don't have a problem with with people being uh, too much bravado, but maybe now I understand it more why that is and the core root of it, um, because I don't, I don't like being the person who sells you something that isn't true, yeah. and that's that doesn't have anything to do with color for me. That's just being real and and not being a bullshitter. But um, you know, like I hate the word hustle. Mm. I hate the word hustle because hustle and it, maybe it might may be my age, but hustle to me means that I steal from you, like mm. I. You know. But for a lot of people now it's changed now where to hustle means and this is for white folk too. Hustle means, you know, you just work really hard. Yep. Um, which you know, I just got learning a new brain or sometimes you can't teach an old dog <laughs> new tricks. As long as hustle means that, you know, that's fine. But uh but you you've helped me understand what that why the bravado is there and why that's important. Um, I don't know. I listen to a lot of heavy metal, so I have my own depressive issues. That you can <laughs> probably psychoanalyze at this point. Well, so that's well, my thing. Well, Chris, I,
1: I, no, I appreciate you. I appreciate <laughs> you talking about your, uh, you know, you haven't stepped deeply into hip-hop music, uh, which is which is understandable. But I, I, and, I And honestly,
0: if I play my metal, because I always tell them, I go, guys, I love you, but if I start playing Metallica, you guys are going to turn me off too. It's like... <laughs> It's like, I, I love playing with them. We have fun. They'll even make jokes. Hey, you're the token white guy on our team. Or, you know, and I'll be like, yeah, cool. I'm, I can roll with it. But as soon as they play and rap, I'm just like, I can't, I can't just can't do this on the gaming channels. I just can't.
1: Oh man. I, I totally understand <laughs> this, but, but again, I, I want to encourage you um, and, and just, just really quick. So a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today um, or over the course of our last couple of conversations Um. I want to share something with you here, and this is going to be a little bit off the uh, the cuff, but this is, uh, this is a quick verse by Jay-Z, and I just want you to listen to the essence of it, okay? So the year is 94, and my trunk is raw, and in my rearview mirror, all I see is the law. I got two choices, y'all. Pull over the car or bounce on the double, put my pedal to the floor. Now, I ain't trying to see no highway chase with Jake, plus I got a few dollars I could fight the case. So I pull over to the side of the road. I heard Son, do you know what I'm stopping you for? Because I'm young and I'm black and my house real low. Do I look like a mind reader, sir? I don't know. Now, I'm under arrest. Can I leave for board? He says, well, you was doing 55 and a 54 license and registration. Please step out of the car. Are you carrying a weapon on you? I know a lot of you are. I ain't stepping out this. All my paper's legit. Well, do you mind if I look around the car a little bit? Well, my license, my glove compartment is locked. So is the trunk in the back and I know my rights. So you going to need a warrant for that. Well, aren't you sharp as a tack? You some type of lawyer or something, somebody important or something? Ah, I didn't pass the bar, but I know a little bit enough that you won't illegally search my, well, we'll see how smart you are when the canine come. I got 99 problems but uh, ain't one that's from his song 99 problems. Now in that verse Chris he says so much about the criminal justice system and having money and being able to fight the case and this idea that black people are pulled over for minor infractions you was doing 55 and a 54 right license and registration please step out of the car should you step out of the car for driving 55 and a 54 right. Well, Jay-Z knows the law. So he says his, license, his, his glove compartment's locked and so is the trunk. So you're gonna need a warrant, right? An understanding of the criminal justice system and how you can perhaps get, o- get off or get away if you, you know have enough money or an understanding, right? And then when everything's said and done, they still bring the canine out, right? <laughs> just, to, just in case. So what I want you to understand from that verse is that there's so much understanding and learning that is woven into certain types of music, for African-American people and people of color through people's experience that you listen to these things and you're like, wow, there's power in that, right? Mm -hmm. So I want you to, your homework assignment, Chris, is I want you to just consider um, the types of understanding that you can reach through uh, listening to different types of music. And specifically, since you're on a journey to better understand the African-American experience, I want you to consider listening to some hip hop music of some different artists and you and I can talk about those artists. And if nothing else, just read the lyrics because that's where a lot of my understanding of different experiences that I haven't been able to, um, you know, actually have myself because of the way that I grew up. That's where it's come from. It's almost like a different art form, just like Metallica. And I love uh, Metallica too, by the way. (laughs) Um, And their music is so, I mean, it's like a spiritual experience, right? Like to hear what they are playing. And one of my favorites was when they actually played with an orchestra and it was just beautiful. I yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. So that's different types of art forms that people share that, mm-hmm. you know, I want you to just consider,
0: you know, it's, I it's will, like, I yeah. will. You've given me a background to it. There used to be this whole thing that, um, if you want to get your wife to watch football with you, you have to get your wife to, you have to talk to your wife about how, uh the relationships that the football players have, like their wife and kids and, you know, the contributions to society and, you know, the more in depth thing that is. And so you've kind of done that with me with rap where now I'm going to be listening to rap from a different perception. I, I think the lyrics are going to be beautiful. It's the, I just don't, I just don't get the beat thing. Like I get the beat thing, like, but I don't get the beat thing. It's like, to me, it just, it sounds like people yelling bravado into a mic, And, and it's like, and then, I think I'm I, – honestly, I think there is some prejudice to me. I'm kind of resentful that they take my Steely Dan and my and my 80s clips and they incorporate in their music. You upset at
1: P. Diddy for using all the samples?
0: I, <laughs> not really. I don't, I don't even know who does it. But, but I, I, you know, there's yeah. certain things that you shouldn't touch. Like you should never cover uh, Stairway to Heaven, like – that's like, you know, I don't care who it is. They just, there's things you shouldn't touch. Like Jimi Hendrix, you shouldn't never touch Jimi Hendrix, it's um, not. but, but, you know, honestly, in fairness, if I can defend myself just a little bit, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm a, I, am I love the blues, like Muddy Waters, yes. all that early blue stuff. Like I have one of my favorites, uh, uh, things who who did Sinner man. Um, uh, Oh God, I love early jazz. Like, I I love the early blues, and I have a real appreciation for how the blues and everything that came out of that experience. I mean, if if it weren't for African-American people, we'd have some really crappy music, which, you know, there's anthrax. Um, (laughs) uh, So, uh, you know, so a lot of it, and a lot of the blues is about the experience of of, of people of color in the South and everything else in struggle. It's like gospel, yep. Yeah, yeah. And I mean gospel music is okay, but I just—it's just, my personal thing. Uh, same thing with country music. Like if you play country music, I'll be punching nails into my head. Like you'll have me on a ledge so fast uh, with that stuff. And I, you know, I I hate to lose the country music crowd, but you know, it's just me personally. Uh, I way.
1: totally understand. And so, so Chris, this last this last <laughs> component that we're going to talk about is really. Um, an important one and I think that you and I have really exemplified this I believe by the last time that we've come together and talked but it's relationships that's the R in power and I guess I just want people who are listening to continue to think about how you can leverage the relationships that you have with people who are different from you to learn more from them but more importantly to learn more about yourself right and I think Chris you know I've gotten to know you a little better um, over these last couple of times and listening to other podcasts that you've done, and you know, I value the relationship that we're building. I value Mm -hmm. the fact that if you have any questions or if I have any questions about how you see things and your perspective and definitely want to understand more about your early life and kind of your understanding of Mormonism and that journey, like I'm going to call you and I'm going to say, hey, Chris, you know, like tell me about this because I want to know your perspective. And I think it's important for people to know it's not everybody in that culture's ex- perspective, right? It's just your perspective. You have a perspective that you experienced something in your life. And if I want to learn more about that, I think that's just your perspective. And so mm. don't try to generalize based on relationships that you have. That's why we always laugh. And in, in, in this space where people are like, well, I asked my black friend and he or she said X, you know, it's like, great. That's their experience of something in particular that happened at a moment in time. There's so many other people's perspectives. And so relationships are so incredibly important. And that's why it's important, as you said, Chris, for us to seek out unique opportunities to connect with people, value people's opinions, you know, talk, have discussions, laugh at each other, cry with each other, um, all of those different things. And so I just want to tell you, I appreciate the relationship that we're building.
0: I appreciate the friendship too. I've got you friends on Facebook, so now you have to listen.
1: Yes. Now I get to see your dogs, you know, and... (laughs) Your life, which is fun, you know, my to look in on that.
0: Posts and stuff. Um, no, I, I, I think it's really good. And what's really nice is, is, and this is really half my serendipity. I didn't sit out to, like, let's have more Black Lives Matter discussions. It was really serendipity. I was, like, looking for people to have on the show. And I was, I came across your thing, and you had a book. And I'm like, I want more authors on. And we were working on these book deals. And then um, the fire uh, – uh, Nicholas Bacola, the the Fire Within or the Fire uh, book that he wrote on William F. Buckley and and the thing came after yours. And you and I had this great discussion that went into Manifest Destiny and a lot of different things um, uh, about your experience, too. And that's a great uh, – people should go back and listen to that podcast because some of it has to do with the internal racism of some of the shades of darkness in the African-American community and the racial uh, things that go on there, which – I always found just amazing beyond I'm just like, seriously, they're as awful as we are sometimes. Um, but we're all human, I guess. So welcome to the human, the human nature, this brain, (laughs) um, the, um, it's a disease we're all stuck with. Um, so, uh, and then I just happened to have him on and just, there was a serendipity and we talked about the stuff. Uh, and, uh, and then I, I wanted, uh, eddie on so we had eddie on and and it was all about the james baldwin stuff and james baldwin has really been helping me out like really helping me out uh i talked about this on eddie's show um where you know i love malcolm x and what mlk said and stuff but he wasn't talking to me white people he wasn't talking to me um he he, yeah he kind of was like hey you should listen to this people. But for the most part, um, I just didn't feel he was ever talking to me. Maybe that's my personal opinion. But James Baldwin talks to me and he talks about, you know, something you mentioned. I love this country and we all love this country. We all, we're all Americans uh, and even people who want to come to this country and, and, and they love it so bad they want to risk their life here. Um, and uh, but, uh, you know, like you say, we're always going to be you know, this is a melting pot in a in a debate session that's lasted for two two hundred forty some odd years, um, and probably always will be. And that's that's the beauty of it mm-hmm. um, when we're not ugly, um, and we listen and we talk. But uh, so it's kind of turned into that. It didn't really, like I said, I had Darlene McDonald who'll be on tomorrow. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the Rev uh, who passed away and and John Lewis. Um, and so it, it kind of became that way through the serendipity of the conversation and just learning and listening and, and I'm glad for it because, uh, it's really helped me out. But James Baldwin is
1: really
0: like just been the dude who's gone. Here's what your problem is, Chris, and mm. your folks. <laughs>
1: and so, and so you, you're, you're bringing up an excellent point, which is find the person who speaks to you. Yeah. You know, and not everybody in the movement um, over time has spoken to folks in a way that they are willing to receive a message, right? Yeah. But um, I think in James Baldwin, you have found a lot of connection with your own personal journey and understanding what is going on in this country, and I think that's beautiful. That there is someone who um, you can connect with that way because I think James Baldwin is a beautiful um, writer, was a beautiful person, and really at a time that it was difficult to separate himself from being within and without was able to do that in a very unique way and intellectualize and articulate what was going on in our country. And so he's really been someone who um, I resonate with, but I also resonate with uh, Malcolm X and his journey as well. So, you know, and, and so, you know, the last thing I want to do, Chris, and I, I truly appreciate the opportunity to be on your show today, talk about power, privilege, outreach, work, Empathy and relationships. Um, everyone has power. By the way, we all have the opportunity to um, really work toward a better understanding of those concepts and moving things forward in this country. We make up the fabric of this Monet, right? Every dot that is beautiful as you stand back and look at this country as a big picture. Um, I did want to take just a minute to, uh, you know, express my sincere, sincere sadness about the passing of Congressman John Lewis um, from Georgia, and just. There's really no way, nothing qualifies me to in any way, shape, or form memorialize him. Um, I just, I, I really don't know enough about his personal journey, have not spent the time that I should studying his progression and everything that he did. But what I will say, Chris, is that we lost an absolutely amazing human being in John Lewis and everything that I have read about him, which has been quite a bit, but I just don't consider myself to be a scholar by any means. He is such a gentle individual who has thrown himself physically, mentally, and spiritually into the movement that is civil rights in the United States from a very young age, um, from leading the march in Selma to becoming a congressman at a young age to being one of the first individuals to integrate the college that he went to. he's been there at every juncture, Chris. He's been at the side of the, the the leaders for many years and for him to be gone. And as we talked about early in this podcast, to be gone in a year where there's been so much vitriol and negativity that continues to swim. I just hope that he was able to recognize how much of a contribution he's made and how many people have been able to stand upon the foundation that he set forth. And I think that's so important. Obama in a post he put up said that he told John Lewis that he stood, Obama stood on John Lewis's shoulders and to see the picture of those two embracing and understand how it took the beating and the fracturing of skulls and the hosing of people with fire hoses and Mm -hmm. the biting of people, of dogs in the 60s and the 70s and the lynchings and all of those things, to see those things comprehensively create a foundation for people of color in this day and age to stand upon is tragic, and it's also beautiful. It is to recognize that the blood that flowed, that the tears that have fallen, that the voices that have gone unheard, they're not silent. Those things are not imaginary. Those things are real tangible steps that we've been able to walk up in order to move toward a more perfect union toward a country that truly does espouse the promise that was given to folks that, you know, we hold these truths to be self evident that all people are created equal. I changed that for a reason. I think John Lewis is a representation of what an individual can do when they harness all of their power and their time and their energy. And they make that contribution toward the good of the cause. And he's going to be missed dearly, uh, Chris. He's a brilliant individual. Um, he's left significant contributions to this world. Um, and I just, I just wanted to take a moment just to say my own personal condolence um, to uh, his son, who's still alive. His, his wife passed um, some years back. But, you know, he's a juggernaut in the civil rights movement. And, you know, I hope that we can continue on without him, but not Without him because his spirit, you know, I was just thinking this morning of this cool thing that maybe him and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Marvin Gaye and, and, you know, Medgar Evers, all of them are getting back together again and saying, would you believe what's going on down there? Can you believe it? You know, I mean, it's just. Oh, man. So I just wanted to take take a second, Chris, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to be on your show today.
0: Oh, yeah. I wanted to talk about him today. I think a beautiful thing that I saw, and I went back and watched a lot of videos yesterday, last night, and this morning, um, of some of those Selma moments crossing the 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 bridge and uh, the beating and getting hit in the head and him bloodied. Uh, and the, all the experiences they were going through in the '60s, and then watching you know him over the years rise through um, everything, his speech at the "I Have a Dream" uh, Million Man March uh, at the steps there of Lincoln, and he, he talked. He went back, I think, 50 years later, just before 50 years later, there was an interview That's he did, and <clears throat> so I watched that whole thing, and he kept talking about Lincoln and just being able to give that speech at the feet of Lincoln and how much that meant to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, and then to see, I think one of the most beautiful things I saw over the last 24 hours was the pictures of him down on the black lives matter mural, or is it a mural or what would you call that? Uh, it's a, it's the thing that's painted painted on, on the, the street. Yeah. Painted on the street. And you can see the White House, which has got an interesting definition these days uh, in the Washington Monument behind it – and he's down on the street, and you can just see the look on his face where he's feeling the moment. At that time, he was really still, he was really sick with cancer and probably shouldn't have been out there, especially with the COVID. But it meant something to him. I remember reading someone wrote that. Uh, and then and there's another picture of him where he's up on a balcony somewhere on that street looking down. And you can see the whole stretch of it. Um, and you, you look at the juxtaposition of coming from, you know, the dogs and the beatings and and the the concussions to, you know, here's where you are. But then you also look at the other juxtaposition of, like, where we're at with Donald Trump and the racism um, and this mountain we still have to climb in November. And even if we climb it, we don't even know what's going on. The secret police thing is getting out of our control too. Um, you know, who knows what sort of constitutional crisis we may face if, if uh, we de-elect this guy elect um so I and I watched a lot of videos, and one of the things I was watching about him, and this is i don't know you you're a psychologist, so you can how <laughs> oh, I have empathy um and uh uh I watched his eyes and I watched his face during the interviews, and the fact that he could forgive and the fact that he he didn't have any animosity, and that he was. And part of the reason I look at that is because i don 't know that i 'd be that person because I have a very ugly side when people screw with me, but you have to screw with me really bad, like you have to come at me with a knife, and then you meet that chris Voss but you you really have to be coming at me with the knife other than that i 'm nice to the nice people, mean to the viciously mean to the mean people um, and so when i was I was looking in his eyes and he talked to one of the things he was talking about in his interview is how actually one of the people who had beaten him. In Montgomery or Birmingham, um, came to his office like almost fifty years later with his son, and his son had been encouraging to have this conversation with him. Mm -hmm. And he came and he apologized and he cried. Uh, the The police officer cried, who'd been a police officer. His son cried. They hugged. Uh, He asked for forgiveness. Um, And and I I kept watching his face, going, "Man, he's for real. Man, he's like." I don't know that I could be that sort of person. So he's way better than I am. Um, but the humanness of that, you know, the the core of being, the, the, the Christ-like sort of humanness of being able to forgive like that and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure I could be that better person. And maybe the reason I look for that is because I'm trying to figure out how to be that better person. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's the psychology of it. But uh, um, seeing that, seeing the, being able to be the better human being after going through so much of that ugliness and and seeing, I mean, you know, 50 years, we we've had some real ugly stuff that's gone on. The Reagan years, um, you know, the racism. Uh even in spite of everything that he championed, Elijah Cummings championed. I was a big fan of Elijah Cummings. Um and just seeing everything that he had to the mountains that he had to climb and go through. And that at the end he could still have that Christlike, uh, humility and, and forgiveness, uh, even in the age of Trump, like, we, you know, if I started seeing Trump and I, I fired up, um, but, uh, and he, I think he understood where we have to go and what we have to do and, and together as a people, uh, as all Americans, um, And you
1: know, Chris, the, the point that you're making is that there are a lot of people who have experienced significant, um, you know, struggle within this country who find it in their hearts to forgive and then continue to move on and continue to fight for the, the cause and the movement and have hope. And hope is so important. And it's hard to have hope without willingness to forgive. And I think that this is one of the things that, that, that has happened in our country is that a lot of people who have done wrong to other people expect those people to forgive them rather than changing their behavior. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And so we can't really make progress if people keep doing the same thing over and over again. And then other people keep forgiving them. We're not making any progress. You're not learning anything. And don't apologize if you're not going to follow that apology by, you know, uh, updated actions that are going to lead to a different you know, consequence. But that is something that a lot, that uh, John Lewis actually said. He said, if not us, who, if not now, when? And so that's really what I want to end on today is we've talked about moving from this idea of awareness to action today. We've talked about the power that people have, but now it's time for people to stop thinking or conceptualizing and actually get out in the field and do what they need to do to help bring this country forward in a positive way. And politics and all of this conversation, it really doesn't have to matter. Everyone can make a difference. Everyone can can do that introspection. They can better understand themselves and move forward. We have to do this as a country. If we don't do it, who's going to do it? If we don't better ourselves as a country, no one else is going to come along and say, hey, I'd love to make America better, right? We Americans have to go on that journey. And it's a painful journey that, that, as you described, it's not fun, right? You're not going to go and read a lot of information that's going to just make you giggly happy about the history of our country when it comes to some of these uh, dark secrets that our country has, but in doing that, we are helping our country become better. So we have to do the heavy lifting, and I'm happy that you started with your show and using your platform to facilitate these discussions. It's
0: awesome. Yeah, the more the more we can bring, the more conversation we have. One one video series I've been really enjoying is uh, uh, Hard Conversations uh, uh, or something on it's it's on YouTube. Yeah, it's with a black on- man. Yeah, with the black man. It's a sportscaster, I think, or a a sports athlete, gentlemen. I've gotten out of sports, so uh, forgive me. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the more conversation we can have, the more, the more we can listen, the more we can understand each other. You know, one thing that's become very apparent to me is this, this huge prison complex, industrial complex that we have and, and the way that everything moves from front to back, the, the tapestry or this fabric we have of institutional racism and, and unconscious bias. And I mean, there's just so much that we have to de-thread or de-deconstruct and, yes. and and deal with, and it's, it's not pretty, and it's not fun, and, and, but it's ugly, and until we reach a point with, with lifting all boats, and, and helping everybody up, and, and uh, making America better, because I don't, I know maybe America, "make America great" isn't the right words to mm-hmm. use, and probably never should be, considering you know the historically abusive racial uh, tones they've been used at or ways they've been used. But maybe "make America better," mm-hmm. because the better, I don't know, to my mind would mean that it's a journey that we never arrive at. When you say "make America great," it's like sounds like it's in, there's an ending to that journey. I don't know. Maybe
1: well, it's the "again" part that really complicates it, right?
0: Oh uh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah! Make yeah. America great again. Like wh- when? Wait a minute. Wait, when was
0: wait, it? When great. Was yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: but again, you know, originally, originally coined by Reagan. And for who? Right. Exactly. Uh, for who? That's right. So, I think yes. Let's make America better together, and yeah. let's go about that journey. It's going to be tough. It's going to be um, really painful at sometimes. But honestly, I think we're making it a better place for our future generations, and. You know, like you said, I mean, if that's kind of one of the things that you do and your legacy, and that's one of the things that I consider to be my legacy as well, um, you know, we'll, we'll be in some, uh, we'll be in great company with the other people who take on that journey.
0: Yeah. It's better to talk things out than beat everyone over the head with these clubs on each other. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's for sure. right. I right, everybody. Um, so anyway, thanks to for tuning in. Uh, I certainly appreciate you guys being here. Lawrence, you're welcome to come back anytime. I think you know that, um, and, uh, and, you know, just learn to listen. And, uh, I think Lawrence has done a great job explaining a lot of different things that we should be thinking about, uh, to my honest for tuning in, be sure to go to the UCVPN.com uh, and, uh, the YouTube channel. Uh, Lawrence, give us your plugs again. So people can look you up on the interwebs.
1: Yes. My plugs, uh, mainly on Facebook. Um, my page is Lawrence chatters motivational speaker. I put, um, different conversations that I have just like this on there and other really positive things. And, you know, just share some different stories about my own personal journey. And so definitely encourage people to like that page and just continue to engage in your own development and understanding of things that might be, you know, not necessarily as important to you, but very important to other people.
0: Thank you. And thanks a for tuning in. Guys, we'll see you next time.